Hi, it's Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 91 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. The studio has a story arc, and then every project is its own story arc, and your relationship with that client's a story arc, and then you have a bunch of staff that have their own story arc, and I think that with enough kind of like thought and intention, you can start to line those things up. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants, discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Where do I begin? I'm just going to be honest here. I am really, really looking forward to sharing this episode today with the world. And the context here is I'm trying to answer a question. Why? Why do we do what we do as creative business owners? Now, the larger context here is for those of you that are fans, longtime listeners to the podcast, I appreciate so much the feedback I've gotten from you. It's been awesome hearing from you. I'm always amazed when I meet somebody that says, I've been a longtime fan of your podcast, and it's somebody that I look at and perhaps respect a lot and think, really? Do you have time to listen to me banter on about all these things? Well, some of you have noticed that over the past month or so, I've been a little quiet on the Rev Thinking podcast. Tim and I have been cranking out our weekly Rev Thoughts, uh, and I appreciate the feedback on that. But what's up with the Rev Thinking podcast? Well, it's this, that we're coming in on episode 100 soon. And as I thought about that milestone, I was thinking back to when I started this podcast, I had this crazy idea, wouldn't it be cool to have a conversation with all these amazing creative entrepreneurs in motion and animation and production around the world. And now we're almost up to episode 100. So my thought was, wait a minute, 91 through 99 is a lead up to something really special, this, this milestone. And so I stepped back and said, I want to make sure that these next nine conversations are really special. And today I'm very pleased to say that my conversation with Jay Grandin at Giant Ant is the perfect way to kick off this mini series here on the Rev Thinking Podcast. Now, my conversation with Jay is getting into an area that is perhaps, let's just say it's not the conversation you're normally going to hear. Because I feel like the conversations about the work and the creative process and all of the how behind animation and motion design and all that, that's stuff that you can get in any number of places out there on the internet. My conversation with Jay is not only let's talk about the business side of running a studio like Giant Ant, but getting deeper and maybe asking existential questions, philosophical questions about why do you do what you do? What drives you? And what's it like? And what are some of the things that you've learned and the wisdom you've gleaned from all the experiences that you've been through? And then there's also this interesting question of where are we going? And so not only where is Giant Ant going as a studio, as a team, uh, but where is the industry going? And what is it that we, as a community of owners of studios, production companies, what is it that we collectively are creating? What are we doing for the world and in the world? So that's my lead in to this episode and the next nine 
as we count down to episode 100 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. I'm so excited. You're going to see some truly incredible and beautiful humans, or hear them, I should say, on these forthcoming episodes. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. Do me a favor. Please spread the word. Share these episodes with your friends and your colleagues in the industry. I would appreciate it. And of course, I always love hearing from you. So drop me a note on social or what have you. And with that, I'm not going to give any, really any more setup. I'm going to let this conversation with Jay speak for itself. I think people in the industry, I would say most people are well acquainted uh, with you because of Giant Ant. And I somewhat affectionately refer to your studio as one of the darlings in the industry. And I mean that in a super big compliment way that what you've been able to do has grabbed attention, accolades, and I think moved the industry forward. Um, so that's, Giant Ann is known for all these amazing things. Great work and incredible design and all these other kinds of things. I'm kind of curious to hear from you though, what is it that you say that you do? If you were going to you know, explain it to your, your grandmother or to a young child or something, how do you just put it in a nutshell and say, well, this is really what Giant Ant does? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the answer is a little bit like, you know, dependent on literacy in either just like the modern world or our industry specifically. So I think to like, you know, my grandma, I would say, you know, I make animation for commercials and you know, that makes sense to her. I think um, for someone who's maybe not like super versed in animation, but kind of gets the digital world, I would say uh, I'm a creative director at a studio that mostly does animation. And I think that creative director, if people have watched, you know, oh man, Don Draper, what the hell? Mad Men. <laughs> it, like it means it means something, even though it, like it very like sparsely resembles what I do. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I usually just say, you know, commercial animation because it's kind of like the the easiest thing to wrap your head around. So now, if I was gonna drill into that, let's say I was a anthropologist or a psychologist, and I said commercial animation. I mean, what is what is that about? What does that do for the world? What does it do for the world? Oh, that's like a, that's a heavy question, <laughs> Joel. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm being really cynical about it, I guess a lot of what I'm trying to do is um, create a fuzzy feeling for people that's associated with a brand in order to create a relationship between that person and that brand so that they are more likely to engage in what it is that they're schlepping. Well, it's funny that you that you use that word because I know that one of the things you put out there in the world is that you have this intention to create meaningful work. And again, I know a bit of this behind the scenes, so to speak. But there is a curation, I think, that you bring to it, right? Because um, as a business owner, as a studio you pick your clients as much as they pick you, right? And so there's some sort of curation that goes on there. So if, if someone came along and said, hey, schlep, uh, schlep our horrible product that's, that does damage in the world, you would just say no. Yeah, I mean, we, we always aspire to say no in those situations. And um, 
And I'd say most often we do. Like we've been we've been pretty successful in being principled about those things. I, I think that there are times when we, you know, we just can't afford to be, uh, and things slip through the cracks. But but by and large, we do um, choose our projects very carefully. You know who we're working for and then kind of what we're doing for that person. You know, those are often kind of different things. Um, but we like to think about it in, you know, I've talked about this in the past, but our little list is would our moms be proud? Would we use this product or service? Like we kind of have kind of a, you know, a checklist of those things. Like, is this a creative opportunity? Is this a financial opportunity? And the financial opportunity is, you know, intentionally at the bottom. Uh, and then there's also like, have we done this before, which can either be a good thing or a bad thing. But we kind of, we, we really do try to run like all projects through that filter. And um, the would our moms be proud one is kind of an avatar for like, hey, should we stop and think about this just a little bit? You know, and it does come up from time to time. Teresa's is really good at saying like, I don't know if my mom would be proud about this. And has that, I'm guessing that's been an evolving set of criteria because... I certainly have known many businesses where that financial decision was the, was the first one. And I don't know that I just by default, I would reflexively fault them for that. But there is an argument to be made called, well, let's, let's be the size studio that we can be and be proud of our work and our clients, our culture, right? All those ethics uh, as opposed to, well, let's just be as big as we can and make as much money as we can, but do work that we're perhaps not quite as proud of, <laughs> or our moms would not be proud to know that we did that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good toss up, that argument. And I think early on, like we talked about that a lot and there are a lot of opportunities to do kind of big, juicy money projects that were just so shitty and, um, resource intensive and it would take like the whole studio six months we'd make a buttload of money and that sounded awesome um on paper and then the more we thought about it like what we realized is that we are um we are as a studio like we're not right now we are like this whole entire story arc and if we want to take this story arc that we imagine and get to this place that is so special we're kind of you know held in high regard and we're doing the kind of work we dream of like if essentially like pausing our our team and our like creative aspirations for six months to make a bunch of money, like is that going to get us there? And the answer is usually no. So, um, you know, we've usually kind of erred on the side of um, let's let's do our best to get excellent and make stuff we can believe in, and the money stuff will will naturally kind of sort itself out. And and that's like pretty altruistic and naive probably and it was probably okay, you know, when when it was like a real question, like choosing between one and the other, um, we were at a times in our lives when, you know, we we didn't really need money. We were kind of just like, you know, living at Leah's grandma's place and like scraping by and that was fine. So our, our barrier to entry was quite low because we didn't really need to, I don't know, there wasn't much pressure financially on our lives and, and on the lives of our employees either. You know, like, so. Yeah, and that's so interesting. It's so interesting how, because <clears throat> I was about to ask you how the, how that narrative arc, because something you said a second ago was like, is that the story that we want to tell? Is that the story that we as a studio are living out <clears throat> in the world? And if we take this hard left here, 
and take that big project with this big money. Like, is that us living out the story that we want to be told? And I thought that was a really beautiful notion. But what's, of course, interesting is that story when you're a small studio and you're scrappy and people are sleeping on, you know, you're sleeping on somebody's couch. I mean, I certainly did that in my day, you know, in the first year or two to make it work. Those needs shift and evolve because there's, as Tim and I often say, there's a day when the pirates kind of grow up and have to become the Navy and you have things like, well, payroll and uh, responsibilities and we, we have children and so forth. And now the story starts to evolve and change. Um, mm-hmm. so did, how different has that story changed? Like when you think back to in the early days when you were still starting to, to now has the whole dream shifted? Like was the dream different back then than, than what it is now, or is it essentially the same? You know, it's not that different, which is really interesting. I mean, maybe it's only interesting to me, but I think it's not that different. And I, I really take pride in that, I think. And we, um, you probably know Jorge. Jorge runs Ordinary Folk. And he, he was with us for, I don't know, a bunch of years, maybe four years or something, four or five years. And then he left and started his own thing, I don't know, I guess four or five years ago. But when we had this going away dinner for him, he read this email that I'd sent to him in the very, very beginning. Like It was like, there were like three of us then, three or four of us. And he'd reached out because he wanted to move back to Vancouver. And he was like, what are you guys all about? And I wrote him this like kind of letter about like who we are and what we aspire to do and how we see the world and how we want to, you know, curate our creative opportunity and channel our creative energy and all this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, it was at the time that he left, I think we were like a 12 or 14 person studio. It was very, very different. And we were, you know, much more like corporate by, you know, real company standards. Um, But it was all still really true stuff. And I think that was his point was he's like, look, like, we're growing or you guys are growing, but it's still the same thing. And um, I think that was his kind of way of saying thank you in a way. And, and I, I really appreciated that. And I, I feel like um, like that's still still true to a point. And, and I think that the one of those things like, you know, they always say like people hire you for what what's in your portfolio, kind of like if they can see it, then that's what you are. And I know <laughs> I know that you know this because I think that we see some of these things with variations of nuance but i've always wanted to be like here i i will show you what we do like we're gonna do what we do we're gonna live it i'm not gonna talk about it we're gonna live it and if i start telling you all the things that i am like then like that's when you should be dubious of me like i want you to be able to like look in my portfolio and see what we are and see what we present to the world and there is like big brand stuff like apple and facebook stuff um, but there's also like a ton of cause-based work and a ton of kind of story-based work. And that's the the stuff that we've always kind of aspired to do. And it does make up like a huge portion of what we do. And it it's um it's kind of a snowball, right? Like you start to do that thing and then you do more of that thing and then you become the person that does that thing. And then you do more of that thing and then you get more creative freedom doing that thing. And that thing evolves to be something more interesting than it would, would have been before because people sort of like you earn their trust by your actions rather than your aspirations kind of. And so I think that that's been kind of our, our story in that we've just, we um, put a flag or a stake or whatever they say in the ground and we haven't deviated from it that much. So the decision-making has been incredibly consistent over the 
number of years have been doing things and that sort of curated a pretty specific type of work and a type of engaging with the work. Well, I'm almost hearing echoes of uh, Simon Sinek's start with why, and I, maybe I'm going to butcher this, but I remember something to the effect of, he, he talks about this idea that your what simply proves or demonstrates your why. And it's a bit of what I'm hearing you say is that like, whatever that letter was that you wrote to Jorge, that he then pulled out years later and said, wow, look, this is still true. It was speaking from a, a why, right? Like we have this purpose and idea and dream of how we want to do things and what we want to do in the world. And then it sounds like if somebody was to look at the work, they would say, oh, wow, the work isn't just there in and of itself for its own purpose. It's, it, it, flew, it, it flowed out of this, this why. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and I hope that that's true. I, I think you can, with any assignment or brief or whatever, there are a couple ways to look at it. And one is um, going like, okay, uh, let's make a 3D spot or let's make a cell animated spot or whatever. And then another way to look at it is saying, okay, like, what do we want people to feel when they're, when they're engaging with this thing? And that's where we always try to start. That's kind of like our thing. And, um, and that's not like a revolutionary thought by any stretch, but, but I think by focusing our attention on like, what do we want the experience of like, what's, what's this experience supposed to be? Like, what's this thing supposed to do? And how should people feel when they're, when it's doing the thing that it's doing? And then working kind of backwards from there, you know, into like granular production decisions and design decisions, um, I think, you know, helps lead us toward a much more interesting result where, you know, just maybe you can kind of feel the work rather than just see a thing that, you know, is pretty. So um, I think maybe, I think maybe in our industry right now, because there is such like a, a style and trend echo chamber. And I think it's really easy to be like, okay, like we're going to make this, whatever a thing, this 3d thing that looks like that thing that Buck did last year, that thing that Gunner did or whatever. And we try really hard to not, not do that. And um, yeah, focus kind of on, on content and mood and emotions. And then kind of, you know, you no, know, you're going down such an inter interesting thread because I would say this. Sure. What you said is not necessarily the most, revolutionary idea of thinking about how do we want this work to make somebody feel. However, what I think is interesting is if that's something that you put out there into the world, it's a really cool idea perhaps for giant ant to, to, to put a stake in the ground called, Hey, here's, you're going to know us by the way we make you feel. And if I'm a, if I'm a client, I think that's interesting because now they're talking about, the result they produce in the world, which is very different from we make commercials, we make promos, right? We make cool design. Those are, those are things, but what you're describing are outcomes and results. And if I look at your body of work, it does make me feel a certain way. So then I think, okay, well, if I'm a brand and that I have a similar why that I want to create a certain feeling for people that have an affinity or an alignment 
with my product, my brand, my whatever thing, because it's going to make their life better, richer, what have you, then I think, well, then giant ant, these are my people. <laughs> like we should hang out and we should work together. I would think that's got to, on some level, resonate with other people in the industry and with clients and, and more. Well, I'm curious, would you say that even that idea of how the work, so I'm going to say just the creative result, the deliverable, right, is going to, when you watch it, it's going to make you feel a certain way. Does that idea of creating a certain feeling also translate to how clients feel working with you and your team? Like, is that, is it just a, like a cultural ethic of this is the kind of work that we do, but this is also how we work and the kind of people we are and how we collaborate and those kinds of things. Yeah, that's a good um, leading question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think so. And it, this is also something we really, you know, aspire toward or I aspire toward as a leader of a team and is, is really like, um, I don't know. Again, it, it's hard to talk about the stuff without sounding really altruistic and kind of like false, false fuzzy, I guess. But um, I really do care about every single person on the team. And it matters a lot to me that they're working on, working on things that fit into their story arc, if that makes any sense. Like, I mean, I guess like the studio has a story arc, right? There's this kind of long story. And then every project is its own story arc. And your relationship with that client's a story arc. And then you're like, you have a bunch of staff that have their own story, story arc. And I think that there's this, with enough kind of like thought and intention, you can start to line those things up in a really powerful way so that, you know, the work that we're producing for the brand like lines up with, you know, where they're trying to go and, and the way that we're doing the work and the output really lines up with where we're trying to go. And the individual kind of experience on a project really lines up where, you know, with where Connor wants to go or where Raph wants to go or Eric or Teresa or whomever. And, and I spend a ton of time obsessing over this sort of like alignment of small and big goals between, you know, the studio, uh, our teams, individual aspirations, and then individual projects. And then also like client relationships and trying to find those things to be in sync as much as possible. And then like, what's so cool then is that you don't have to fight it as much. Like you're not paddling upstream. You're sort of like putting it all together and putting the right pieces together and the right people and components. And then just like cool shit happens. And, but I think, you know, we do, um, we do take a lot of care to, to think about the experience of, of our staff. And, you know, one of our rules is, you know, put love in your work. So it's like, never miss a deadline. Don't be a jerk, put love in your work. And, um, it's hard to love your work always. It's hard to do anything 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year and love it. So um, I think the kind of the social contract that we've built up in the studio is that like I, I or we as the management, management group will like try our very best to curate your experience uh, as closely as we reasonably can to um, what will feel good to you within the context of like, this is what the money's for. You're doing a job. Thank you very much. Um, and then in exchange, <laughs> that was very Don Draper like, of you. <laughs> you'll, you'll give us the little extra, right? Like you'll, <laughs> you'll put the love into it, you know? And, and, um, and I do really think you can see that in the work and it's sort of like, it helps become this self-perpetuating cycle. And 
you know, the same thing extends to our producers and our art directors and those who are in closer contact with, um, with our clients where I think you can, uh, they, they feel the love in the work and in the studio and that's infectious and that like the mood is good and everyone feels kind of happy. And like, you know, we do have like shitty clients sometimes that are, you know, not nice or who are kind of like not very clever or whatever. And, um, and the wheels can fall off and they do, but, but we also have, you know, we, we just finished a project with Ted and we got such a nice email from, from our client there just saying like, just, just talking about the experience, like the kind of like the qualitative part of it, which, you know, and quantitatively, I think like the, the project was good. It's going to achieve their goals. And I think we did a good job. We had not very much time and whatever. So we, we succeeded, but she was really, um, I think as a client, she really felt supported and that just made me feel so stoked about kind of us living who we say we are in a way that didn't have to be discussed. We just did it. And it, and the feedback was that it was true, you know? Well, I, so, you know, from my experience of being on site with you and the team, it's interesting because I think I could, I can definitely affirm your vision that you just described of having this social contract and, and really working hard to create an alignment, alignment between the studio mission, the, the, what you want to see in the work, uh, everyone's individual career paths. Uh, and that commitment is, it's very real. And I think as you describe it, I'm thinking of people listening saying, geez, like really? How lucky are you that all that just somehow lines up? And my thought is it doesn't just happen. It's not just showing up and keeping your nose to the grindstone, uh, or as, as one of my former employees advised me very uh, shrewdly, Joel, hope is not a plan. So it's not about just hoping. There, there must have been some intention long ago that, and tough choices that you made along the way called, that's just not the kind of company, the kind of team, the kind of client, the kind of work. So therefore... Um, but how, how does, how has that played it out in this, the day in day out grind when you're just trying to decide, well, should we take this next job? Yeah, we need the money and we think it's going to go well, but we're not sure. I mean, it, I don't know what, what advice or encouragement did you, do you have for somebody that hears about that alignment that you describe and says, well, damn, I want that. Uh, oh man, uh, I guess this doesn't sound like advice or encouragement, but I would just say that it's hard. Like it, it just requires making that the top priority, making the culture and the mission and the quality, like all the, the top priority. It, I think that sometimes you can be fooled into thinking you have to choose between doing a lot or doing good work and treating the team well. And I don't think that's true. I think you can do both of those things. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Joel. Like I, I just think about this all the time. Like I obsess over it and I think about it at night and I wake up thinking about it and that makes my life a boring place sometimes. But <laughs> it's, um, I think it's just like, I've got my jaws locked on that as a, 
as a problem often. And, and, you know, it's like, there are lots of messy failures as well. And it, sometimes I say to Teresa, I feel like some, I, I'm like, Teresa's our EP for those of you who don't, don't know. And sort of, I guess we sort of run the, run the business together in terms of like thinking through these higher level problems. Um, but I feel like I sort of move around the room like a roaming spotlight where it's like, okay, like Johanna, I haven't spent a lot of time with him in a while. Like he's like, you know, I'll focus there a little bit, like really like tune myself up on remembering like what it is that he wants to do and where he's headed. And then now that my memory is refreshed, okay, cool. Like let's think about his story arc for the next two months in terms of projects. And then it's like, okay, now we're over to Esther. <laughs> like what's up with Esther? Like thinking about her for a bit. And then, you know, you kind of just keep kind of moving around the room. And then by the time, you know, you, you come back around, like there's just stuff that needs to be, discussed and fiddled with again it's like cleaning your house it just well i, I think i clean. i observed that in a way i think this was jay's genius right or what we might call your superpower in that you do have this <clears throat> dogged commitment to i really want people to be plugged in and engaged and connected with with what brings meaning to their careers and hopefully their lives um and is it safe to say this is perhaps this is the one of your 2 a.m. issues, you know, where you kind of pop up in the middle of the night and say, oh, what's going on with that person? Where are they at? I wonder if they're happy. I wonder if they're if things are good. I need to check in with them. I need to move my radar <laughs> over there for a while. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think the way that that plays out as a thought process often is... Um is usually an observation that somebody is seemingly unhappy or seemingly underperforming. And I guess what I try to do is assume that there's something I could be doing better. And um, sometimes, sometimes it's just people go through stuff and sometimes people are in a creative drought or whatever, but, but more often than not, it's, it's like, it is something I could be doing better. It's that I, I haven't asked the right questions or I haven't um, given them the right opportunity to voice their own concerns about something or to kind of step up and ask for something. And um, yeah, so I, I guess it kind of, it is the 2 a.m. thing. Is it a, uh, would you describe that as like a benefit of the doubt that you try to extend by default whenever you walk into situation or a relationship that you you always think okay wait before i <laughs> jump in and impose my understanding of this situation let me let me see it from another perspective before i before i, I think act it, too quickly yeah I, I think that that's what i aspire to do um i, th I think it's easy to be like well, come on man like your work's been garbage lately like what is up i know you're really good at this stuff like give me a break but then you know, sometimes the answer is like, you know, well, for all these reasons, like I don't feel heard right now or I don't feel challenged or whatever. And so, and the, I mean, the other thing is that all I, all I can do is control my, my responsibility in, in my interactions. So um, I guess I try to focus there first and, and figure out like, okay, well, what could I be doing better here? How could I be making the situation more, uh, fluid for this person and then beyond that i know it's like okay well i've, I've done my thing like the rest is 
this is on you now. Like, let's go. And and I think that that, I mean, I hope that there's no doubt for my team. <laughs> if they listen to this, they may disagree. But but that that you know, at least to the extent that I hope it is, is true. That like I'll I'll do my best to to like hold up my side of the bargain. And typically, you know, they they do as well. So that actually reminds me of a thread I was curious to explore with you about your your role, your position as the owner. Is it safe to say that being the, I'll call it the creative entrepreneur, right? The one who's helming Giant Ant, is creating that alignment the thing that you love most about being an, an owner? I don't think so. I don't think I love it. I think I find it really stressful, but I also feel like it's really important. And so I think I feel like it's more important than anyone else thinks it is. And so because of that, I feel the most responsibility to keep my eye on that ball. And I find in some ways it feels like, like a piano strapped to my back, like just because I know it's important. I, I feel really strongly that it's, critical to our success, like creatively and financially. Um, and that might be an unfounded concern, but, but it's like of the utmost concern to me. And, um, yeah. And I think if I didn't care about that stuff, I'd probably spend way more time on vacation, honestly, because, um, there are so many talented people in the room and I am not needed to make good work like at all. If anything, I probably, make it harder sometimes um, because I want to talk about stuff so much, but, but yeah, like the, the team's incredibly talented. And I think that the, you know, but I, I think when you're an employee, right? Like you're, you're like a mercenary in a group of mercenaries and you're doing your thing. No, even if you're leading other people, but I think if you, if you do truly feel like, like I'm responsible for this whole thing, like the buck stops here, like if I don't make this good, nobody will. I think there's just a different level of responsibility and care and urgency. And that's the one that I experience. And that's probably the thing. In some ways, it might be the thing I like the least about being an owner. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I'm hearing you describe what I would characterize as a burden, right? Like there's a certain there's a certain thing that you feel like this is really, really important. I don't necessarily love the doing that's required for this to be done, but it must be done. So therefore I, if no one takes on this burden, then I have to do it or no one else can do it. Um, so in that case, let me ask this question. Well, what, what, what do you love? What is the thing that you love? Like, gosh, owning, running your own shop. What, what makes you most happy being on vacation? Oh man, maybe I lied about the previous thing. Like, um, <laughs> I find, I mean, there's like, there's, there's category one fun and category two fun, you know, like category one fun is like, I don't know, like going for a beer, uh, go-karting. And then category two fun is like jogging or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that was great. I love running, but like it's painful <laughs> the whole time. And I, I feel like maybe, the stuff you're just describing is kind of category two fun in terms of like, it's, um, you know, it, it hurts or it, it's onerous, but it, there's a huge tremendous amount of satisfaction. I think when it goes well that I, um, get a bunch of dopamine from. 
Yeah, you just took the word out of my mouth I was going to offer up, and that is, is it satisfying and somehow in- gratifying? Yeah, it's so super satisfying and gratifying. And like when we get to the end of a project and everyone feels like, oh, that sucked. I hated that. <laughs> like, and everyone's pissed at each other. Like, then I feel like I've just failed so hard. But sometimes we get to the end of a project and everyone's like, oh, man, great work. And you have know, got people in the Slack channel congratulating one another. And that feels like, I just love seeing that stuff like in a kind of like a cheesy kind of like dad kind of way like I, I just love I love seeing like the love move around the room I'm hearing uh like pride there's some sort of a proud papa sort of thing like hey I played a really important part in what's happening here yeah but everybody yeah. did yeah, right I, I everybody brought so. something really magical and this this strange alchemy has just produced something kind of awesome. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I hope that we've created an environment where, you know, nobody's trying to be too cool and, you know, we've curated really smart and talented people and hopefully as much as we can, I've like encouraged them to have the space to be themselves. And, um, and I think that, you know, maybe that freedom creates kind of a really warm environment mm-hmm. and, you know, at least sometimes. You know, I'm curious. I, I have to ask a, almost, I don't know if this is a side note or if this dovetails, but the the piece that you guys recently produced, the right now. Yeah. What was, and of course, I'm not going to describe it. So people, anybody listening has to go watch it because it's, in my opinion, really beautiful. What's the quick version behind how that came about? What purpose is it, is it serving, et cetera? I'm really curious because I loved it. Um, the, the purpose, like really simply, was whatever the week of March 9th, I guess, which is the last week we were in the office, I was like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> the world is changing right now. Like Everyone's starting to go on lockdown and shut down, and people are working from home. That's going to be us probably next week. What's going to happen? Are all of our clients going to go away? It, you're like we were doing the global brand campaign for Slack and they pivoted to a, like an in-house kind of UI based direction the week before. So that vanished. So that was like 30% of our stuff. And then this, this stuff was about to happen with COVID or was happening. And like another one of our big contracts is doing all the Times Square stuff for Coca-Cola. And we're like, well, who's going to be in Times Square in a minute? Like everyone's going to be in their apartments. So they're not going to pour any money into that. So I, I guess like really simply it was like, how can we, how can we create something that feels like a really juicy creative undertaking that will potentially keep us busy while we just find our feet in this new world? And um, so I like went into a meeting room and just wrote this thing that was kind of based on a thing that I thought about before for a short. And, um, and it was, yeah, just like, let's make, make a spot, hard cuts, easy to spread around that utilizes like as much of the team as possible in kind of its approach and then just see what happens. So that was, that was like the, the, the business um, desire. And then kind of the more like creative desire was just, I mean, I think that in that moment I felt really unsure and unclear and, but what was going to happen, I guess like business wise and just life wise and, and, it was interesting looking around the room and looking around my friend group and looking around my, you know, peers in our industry as well. And just seeing how different people were reacting to the uncertainty. 
then some people were panicking and some people were kind of just like shrugging it off. And I guess that, that got me thinking about, um, just how, you know, how we, how we as people react to dire situations. And if you've got, if you've got five minutes left, what do you do? Do you party? Do you cry? Do you shut down? Do you open up? Like, and that was kind of it. That was the idea, um, to explore that kind of idea while also keeping the team busy if we ran out of work, I guess. (laughs) Was the idea pre-COVID? Because when I watched that, I just found this, it was sort of sublimely relevant to what I was experiencing, but in an abstract way, granted, but was, was the idea something that you had prior to COVID hitting? And then when it hit, it found some sort of a new expression? Yeah, the, the idea originally was just about um, shared moments in time around uh, around some like banal shared event. So like a comet streaking through the sky or whatever. And so we kind of just shifted that to be a little bit more apocalyptic because that's how everything felt. So um, just a bit more like a, a layer of like grief and uncertainty on top of it. Well, I like yeah. the... I like that you make the point of there were certain business reasons for undertaking that in addition to other reasons. Um, I'm curious how, how has it been received by, by clients or other people? Has it, has it garnered attention or started any conversations? Yeah, it really has. People seem to really connect with it. And um, I mean, 2020 has been a bummer of a year, right? Like it's just like, do you remember the wildfires in Australia? Like that was still this year. Like oh, it's just I was, been a, yeah, I was down there when that was going on. It was freaking man, nuts. It's just been nuts. So I think, I think everyone, everyone that I talked to or know seems to have had, you know, struggled with something, you know, whether it's my brother in Australia or other people with COVID or whatever. So I think that, I think it's connected to people and we've actually had a lot of new business uh, generated from it already, which is really interesting. Well, I love um, how I love how those types of pieces, because I hear clients, meaning buyers um, on the buyer side, clients of my clients, often saying, "I just want to know what is it that you really dream of doing, and if if all the decisions were up to you, and creative, and every color and font choice, and you know, make the logo bigger, all that stuff was was in your hands. What would you do?" And I would think that, you know, when I saw that piece, I immediately thought, "Gosh, there's a certain." there's a certain depth and why that comes through in that piece that just makes me say, Whoa, there there's a lot more going on here than here's a studio that makes pretty pictures for brands that are selling stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it came through that way. And I, I can't take, like I'm talking to you and we're talking about kind of me as a proxy for us, but I totally can't take credit for all that stuff. And I, I just went through and like, wrote down a shot list basically. And then I got together with, um, Esther, one of our animators. And I was like, Hey, you talked about how you wanted to storyboard stuff. Do you like, do you want to storyboard this? And she kind of looked at it. She's like, I don't, I don't really get it. I'm like, what are you trying to do? And then I sort of described what I was trying to say in the way I described it to you. She's like, Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I get it. Like, how about this shot instead of this shot? And she really like, you know, elevated it, made this beautiful storyboard. And then we took it to our illustrators and they made these beautiful frames and then like the animators just killed it. But everyone kind of brought a thing to it. And 
I wouldn't say you could even describe it as having a director. Like we, we always direct as giant ant, like even if there is a director, because, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fluidity in the way we make creative decisions. And there's a lot of like collective taste that goes into that kind of stuff. But, but this one like truly did not, not even as like we direct as giant ant, like it was just directed by giant ant. Like it, it was sort of this like direction by committee in a Slack channel. And it was so rad. Like people would, kind of jump onto it and make it more interesting and then, you know, step away and then someone come back and give some notes. And, you know, you had, you know, juniors giving notes to seniors and seniors giving notes to juniors. And it was very egalitarian in a, in a pretty cool way. Well, I, I, uh, I, I love that notion of directed by giant ant. Um, not that it's b better, right. than directed by an individual when that's the way projects get credited. But I think it just it definitely speaks to the culture, even how as a business you solve problems. And I think it, it you know me, I'm a big fan of making people curious. And that's one of those things that makes me say, wait, what? What does that mean? <laughs> Directed by giant ant. So I think to hear you explain it makes me say, oh, I like that. Like, I'd like to work with a team like that and get that collective mojo uh, which is quite different than a top-down hierarchical mojo that you might get from an individual director. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it can't just be like a free-for-all. Otherwise, it's just like a total like goat rodeo or whatever. But like what we try to do in every project is assign a creative lead who's in charge of uh, a responsible for words and ideas, an art lead that's responsible for pictures, and an animation lead that's responsible for movement. And together, that group of three um, kind of directs the project in a more classical way. But we, uh, particularly now with everyone kind of, you know, not in the room, it's really hard to like walk around the room and keep in touch with everyone, especially on a big, complex project. And things can just like go bananas if you're not on top of it. So. By breaking up the responsibilities in that way, um, it just sort of, it creates kind of micro teams within the project team that there's a team captain of, and it just kind of makes things better, I think. And I think it also, um, it keeps us honest, you know, making good design decisions for the animation that we're going to do because of the scope that we have. And the producer's kind of part of that as well. And um, I think it forces negotiation. I think that's really, uh, you know, makes the work better rather than someone just being like, yeah, great. It's going to be like this. Yeah. Yeah. Some director is thinking about it in order of like big idea, like amazing frames. And then there's like no time to animate this thing because it's a linear process, but we have the people that are going to be responsible for, you know, the animation direction as part of the directorial team and the ideas kind of process. And I, I think that that, you know, allows us to, leave the office at six <laughs> as well as um, end up with a better product. Well, I'm, uh, I'm curious. It's a bit of a wonky insidery, uh, I guess I'd say insider baseball question. I'm certain producers are client facing. Are those team captains? Are they also client facing or do they, do they still somewhat live behind the, uh, the wall of protection that the producers provide? It depends a little on the project and it depends a little on the client. Um, you know, often if it's a, if it's a simpler kind of straightforward kind of thing, it's like often me and the producer will do most of that client facing stuff. Um, but then 
you know, on our kind of bigger, more complex projects, like they totally are. And, and in some cases, um, you know, through the process of doing that, it, like that's been a way that I've been able to like get out of stuff in the business where like Coca-Cola as an example of a client, it sort of started with me being there and Eric as the art director and Matt as sort of the animation director. And then Eric just sort of became the creative director on the project because he was, you know, pretty deep with the client and formed that relationship. And that's been a good lesson, I think, in terms of um, letting go of stuff. So we are, you know, we're trying to, as much as possible, like get people engaged in, in client-facing stuff without, you know, spending all day in Zoom. <laughs> right. Well said. As as you and I are right now, we're, we're uh, I heard uh, Tim coined a phrase today. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm Zoomed out. I said, yep, there it is. That's That's the word for it. Yeah, like I've got a little post-it note on my desk that I used to cover up my face because I'm so tired. Like right now I've got the recording window for QuickTime over top of, it's like I've never looked in the mirror less, but I've never looked at myself more than this period of my life the yep. last six months. So true. So true. So this period of our lives, um, I think what you said earlier was we would agree like the planet has kind of taken an ass kicking or at least for the humans um, that live on it. Uh, when you when you look at maybe towards next year, and you just see where Giant Ant is, where you're going, are you are you overall an optimist? Are you somewhat pessimistic? And I think you know I'm asking more in the sense of of our of our industry um, because I'm sure there's still going to be brands and there's still going to be agencies needing commercials and products needing to be launched and all sorts of cool things, but um, just more from the standpoint of, of our industry, which would you say you you live in more? I feel optimistic about our industry. Um, I just think our industry is so vast and it's becoming more vast. And, you know, like, like look at like Blur, who like they at least the way I know of them is through doing like super high end like game trailers. But then they just produced a Netflix series last year, you two years ago, whatever that uh Life and Death of Robots series. And that's kind of amazing. And I've talked to a lot of other studios who are, you know, developing IP for television stuff or to sell to Hulu or to sell to Netflix or whatever. And um I don't know. I don't know if that's like a reason to be optimistic, but I think that there's been an interesting thing where sort of like animation's not new, right? Like we've had an animation industry for a hundred years, but suddenly like the motion graphics industry started where it's a bunch of like graphic design nerds. And they're like, I'm going to learn after effects. I'm an animator now, but we started from scratch again. It's almost like there was this industry off to the side that had been really good and successful for a long time. And then we had the audacity as an industry to kind of start from zero and like redefine it and learn it and be bad at it and then get better at it. And what we've ended up with is sort of like we pulled a bunch of people in from that industry and we pulled a bunch of people in from like the 3D animation industry. And we've got kind of our own set of tools, our own way of doing things, but we're getting really good at it too. And so now it's sort of like that is blooming back into those other industries, which is so interesting because we've sort of been pulling and now we're kind of pushing back out. And I don't know where that's going to go, but I mean, I'm hoping for us that it's going to cause us to have opportunities to do more storytelling and less dog food selling and, um, 
you know, like, like touch people because they need to be touched rather than because they need to be like reminded to buy toilet paper. Right. Right. Um, well, what I hear, I, I have this, I mean, it's still a theory right now, but I'm starting to see it play out in reality. Um, and it's part of an ongoing conversation I've been having with Ryan Summers, who's, you know, ex DK and creative director extraordinaire, um, at school of motion. But the idea that motion design, I'm going to use that label for the moment, but that it's evolving as a discipline and going into some unexpected directions. And I think like you, I have a similar optimism because I know this, that like you said, a generation or two ago, obviously there was a whole community of animators that were killing it. And, and I have ultimate respect for all those people. Um, but now today, you know, if I hold this thing up, I say, yeah, but we, we're all now carrying around screens in our pockets. And that's just the beginning of, right. The whole shift that's happening. And so now it seems like there's this really amazing thing called motion design. And within there is design and typography. There's story and characters. There's technology. There's all these things that are coming together. And it seems like the potential for that discipline to solve problems that we don't even yet recognize is large. It, it, it just... It just makes sense to me because it goes way beyond creating cool intros and splash screens and another dog food commercial, as you say, um, because it gets into the way apps will be built in the future and it gets into the way experiences will be experienced in, in stores and, and malls and cars and all these other things once we can, you know, of course, get together as human beings again and occupy the same space. But is your is your optimism similarly founded? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it is. And I, I think, on the other hand, I do definitely toggle back and forth between this sense of like, yeah, we're doing something important. Like this is we're we're moving the needle on creating. And then sometimes I'm like, what is all this about? Like, regardless of whether I'm you know telling the story of some underprivileged person in an underrepresented place or whatever and doing it for X tech brand, like I'm still selling X tech brand. And is that making the world a better place or not? Like, I don't really know. But I think, um, I think, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer. I think, I think what's so interesting about the, like the volume of shit that we've been pushing out for the last few years is, is that it's like at very least helping people become more um, discerning and literate about what it is that they're watching. And, you know, like I think we're getting to be pretty good, pretty good at like looking at advertising and looking at marketing and looking at messaging and, um, and kind of understanding when it's bullshit and when it's, when it's not. And so like maybe if nothing else, like what we're doing as an industry is giving, giving the whole world like a really quick crash course in nonsense so that they can become more discerning <laughs> on their own. And maybe that'll lead us toward more like creative and fulfilling ways of, you know, digesting content. I don't really know. I'm just, I'm totally rambling. 
No, it's okay because I, I here's what's interesting is is you're you're exploring this this question of well, does that really matter? Is that really making the world a better place? And I feel like, wait a minute, that's that's the question, right? There's not the answer is gonna take a thousand different forms. And I'm just glad that you're asking that question because I feel like if I keep asking that question, you keep asking that question, that we as an industry keep asking that question, we've got this really cool tool and we can go, you know, hammer nails with it. We can go cut boards with it. We can go whatever, blow things up. Um, then the question becomes, but should we? And where should we, how should we deploy this, this powerful thing that we have? And I... I'm again cautiously optimistic that it will <laughs> it will ultimately serve good ends and matter. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if we I think you're right. I think we'll at least have the opportunity for that to be true. And I mean, I guess like okay, so the other day we delivered a bunch of projects of uh, five spots about climate change. There are 60 seconds each and um and it was really fun to work. It was really satisfying to work on them because it's like, it's something that I worry about personally. And so we made these things and, but then winter, my son was asking like, what do you, what videos did you make today, Dada? And I was like, oh, it just so happened to have like delivered all these files to a client. Why didn't I show you all these spots? And I got to show my kids these five spots about different aspects of climate change. And they're five, my kids. And they totally got it. And I was like, oh shit, like, this is really cool. I just made a thing that made this concept make sense to them. And I mean, because it's for a big organization, like a lot of people are going to see this and maybe a lot of other kids will see it. Maybe a lot of like dumb grownups will see it. And like, we'll start to understand some of these things more meaningfully. So I mean, I think that like there, there, there's a lot of good that we can do with communication. Obviously it's not all, you know, advertising and um, but I, yeah, I think that, that that side of it is still really exciting. That's a beautiful. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad you had that example teed up because you just totally you just totally gave my argument, uh, right? A, a case study that we can say, see, this does matter. This does matter. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, is is um, when you look into the future, maybe next year, um. Are those the kinds of opportunities that get you excited? I mean, as Giant Ant continues its journey and continues to evolve and pivot however it must pivot and so forth, um, are those types of opportunities the ones that perhaps you're more excited about than uh, than the next dog food commercial? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And Another thing that we have noticed or I've noticed is that projects are starting to get longer again. I don't know if it's my imagination, but you know, we used to do, and I've talked about this before, like on podcasts and stuff, but we used to do these like three, four minute, like epic, like films almost like by, you know, compared to what we do today. And, you know, then it was like, ah, it's, we want a 60. And then it was like, we want a 30. And then it was a 15. And then it's like, it's got to be a six, but we need to have the call to action in the first half a second so that people don't bounce on Facebook. And it's just like, there was a period maybe a year and a half ago where it was like, holy smokes, like every project is just garbage. Like you, 
Like, what can we possibly do in six seconds for sound off viewing that has any like shred of meaning other than a bunch of pretty colors that are arranged on the page in a way that's trendy because that's what's going to make people stop. But, 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 and I don't know if it's because of COVID and people being at home and having more time and spending more time on screens and digesting content differently, but it feels like um, we're starting to see assignments that are starting to get longer again and have more meaning and have more story arc and have more uh, patience and like give the audience more credit. And that is so exciting to me because, you know, I think that I was on the brink of being like, oh my God, we're going to be making, like, we're one step away from banner ads under the guise of like making animated videos because <laughs> things are getting so simplified. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's my, my hope is that we can like, you know, really uh, dig in, whether it's, you know, about, you know, cause-based stuff or just stuff that, you know, allows people to kind of experience a bit of an arc and feel a, feel a something, but isn't that it's such an interesting thought to think that maybe one of the silver linings to COVID and everything happening in the world right now is a slowing down and perhaps a thoughtfulness that wasn't possible when the economy is humming and everyone is go, go, go and busy, busy, busy. And I only have time to look at a banner ad while I'm in line at Starbucks. Right. But now I'm not in line anywhere. <laughs> so I'm, I'm at, I'm at home and I've, I actually do have 30 seconds or a minute or two to digest something. I mean, it stands to reason that that's what's behind it. Um, and I'm with you. I think that's, that's actually kind of an interesting thing to be excited about is the pendulum swinging back the other way. Is there anything this year in the last six months that you've noticed in a more profound way that you, than you have in a really long time? Well, I think uh, what I've experienced, and I've heard other you know friends and people share this as well, is one heightened in awareness of things that truly matter, mm -hmm. and I think also a greater space for reflection. Yeah, and that that has had some interesting side effects, and mostly all good. Did that come on right all at once, or has that kind of been a slow burn for you? Hmm. Both. Both, because I think um, there were there were definite stages of grief that I found myself going through, and each stage had its had its own. Oh, this is what's important, and this is what I'm how it's causing me to reflect and yeah. how my community is processing it. And then you enter that next stage of grief and it suddenly shifts. So it's been this, you know, evolving thing um, that's taken a lot more time to play out than, than I might've expected. But what about you? Well, one thing I really noticed this year, I mean, all the things like that you're saying for sure, like with, you know, thinking about the, just our interconnectedness, the pandemic and the health system, and then, you know, BLM and then, the issue of policing, which I mean is related, but also kind of a separate issue. Like it's not purely about racism. It's about all kinds of other systemic problems. But anyway, one thing I really noticed this year was the spring. And I felt like March was like a hundred days this year. And I don't know if everyone felt that way, but it was like March 16th, we started working from home and it like went into bullet time for what felt like months and it was still only like 
whatever, 15 days less than a month, but I, I run a bunch and I would go uh, out, you know, pretty much every day, almost every day for a run. And I was going down just like, you know, streets that I hadn't been down before. And because I was trying to avoid people and just seeing, I don't know, I just noticed trees in a different way. Like I, I felt like I saw the spring unfold in front of me in a way that it's usually like, it's winter, it's cold, uh, wear my t-shirts. And like, that is kind of the transition. But um, but I don't know, I guess what you were saying, like having time and to kind of process and have awareness and kind of focus on stuff in a different way was, yeah, totally. And I, I wonder if, to your point, if that is like that maybe increased capacity for attention span is going to sort of bleed through the kind of work that we do or have an opportunity to do because we're sort of becoming reacquainted with longer spans of time when we don't have the opportunity to fill them in the same way. I don't know. Yeah, I there there are certainly many many side effects yet to come and of course yet to even perceive that will only play out over time. Um it's going to be an interesting rest of the year, my friend, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean it's going to be yeah. I mean, it's going to be very interesting in your country, regardless of anything else. But I think thinking about the COVID stuff specifically, I mean, it's, it's going to, yeah, we're not going to be out of it in December. That's for sure. Well, I'm glad you're, you're maintaining, uh, some optimism and I'm glad to hear, of course, that, um, you and the team are you know, thriving and, and adapting and, and doing well and still producing some really beautiful things that um, the industry can admire and say, Ooh, they're, they're still, they're still killing it. Well, I mean, we're, I'd say we're thriving like with an asterisk, which is, you know, that it's hard and people are lonely or scared or depressed or like all these things, you know, people have repetitive strain injuries because it just, just whatever it's but we're all things considered i think we're we're definitely thriving and i think most most people on the team are are doing pretty okay do you ever are you starting to fantasize <laughs> i use that word about what it will be like someday I'm not going to put a date on it but a day when like you can just walk into the studio and everyone's there and you can hug whoever you want to hug. You can high five yeah. whoever you want to high five. You can, like, someone can say, hey, what do you think of this? And they just turn their monitor to you and you look at it. You don't have to download a file or whatever. Like, oh, man. All yeah. of that, right? Like, I I definitely find myself, you know, going back to Blend and go, traveling and going back to clients and being in the studios with the, the owners and the, the teams. I mean, I just, I can't, I kind of can't think about it because I get I get so, I get emotional about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so much better that way. Like creativity in a room together is so awesome in comparison. It's like, it's easy for us to make work, but I think it's harder to innovate when you're not together. Like there's just a certain amount of serendipity that happens from being in the room and like seeing, seeing people's process and like what they think is a failed part of their process, which is actually like a brilliant part of the process. It just hasn't been like 
rotated the right way yet or something. Like we get to we get to have all those happy accidents in the office together. And still like and having a conversation with somebody where, you know, when you're talking to somebody and they like a bit of spit like flies out of their mouth and maybe it hits you in the lip and you like pretend not to notice because you don't want to be rude and embarrass them. But now today, if that happened, you'd like be in line for a COVID test so fast. Like that, like that kind of stuff. So I, yeah, definitely like, you know, awkwardly spaced around the room, like molecules trying to, you know, spread out within a, it's crazy. I didn't actually, I didn't do that to you when I was, when I was in Vancouver, right? You're not telling a a story and just not naming names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a preloaded Joel story there. Yeah, exactly. But we, I mean, we, you know, we went for dinner a couple times in loud places and like yelled across the table moistly at one another <laughs> over a drink for hours. Like, how awesome was that? When's the last time you did something like that? Like, practically then. I know it, it was. Yeah, it was a few weeks later that that everything changed. So I'm uh, I'm just dying for that to that to return. So here, all right. So here, let me let me tee you up with maybe just a final final question, final thought. Is it possible that when this next phase season is upon us and we can return to being together and collaborate in that way, is there the potential for some sort of a renaissance or a new rebirth of something because it's been squelched for however long it will have been (laughs) maybe a year or two. I think so. And I think, um, I haven't thought about this once before, so I'm thinking out loud entirely, (laughs) but I think one thing that might happen is that there's going to be a really big changeover in creative leadership at that time, because I think that maybe just maybe like, creative leaders like me and a lot of the people that I have met or that I know well at other studios that are running studios are going to be so burnt out and exhausted by the time we get through this, just by like hanging on for dear life that, um, that a lot of them are going to be like, okay, cool. Got here. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go be in the woods for like a couple of years or something. And, and I think that there's going to be a new generation of creative leaders that are kind of thrust into the spotlight after we like dock the ship um, or, or that like life on zoom created enough of a flat hierarchy in a new way that um, that some new voices will emerge that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to kind of blossom because you don't have to be a, a showman up in front of the room to, to be a creative leader right now. You just have to like, be thoughtful and be successful. And there are a lot of thoughtful, successful people out there that aren't necessarily extroverts that are probably like really thriving and are going to kill it when they come back together with that new found confidence. So I'm excited about that. And I, I hope for that with our studio that um, I'm just going to be like, okay, I'm just pooped. And then they're going to be a bunch of people who are like, yeah, well, I, we got this. Like, don't worry about it. Well, I look forward to that unfolding and uh, cheering you on from the sidelines. And with that, I want to say thanks for having this conversation. I'm incredibly grateful for the uh, just the candor and the humanity that you're willing to share with me and and the listeners. 
Well, thank you so much for the invite. I feel honored. So it's always nice to talk to you. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. 